This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers are working from sun up to sun now, so... Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers at one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. They're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. So let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello and welcome to Countrywide. I'm Bridget Herman. You've tuned in for a special episode. We're going to do a deep dive into last year's record heat and its impacts on agriculture. But first, let's find out more about what actually happened. It's been a terrible summer of wild weather, fires early on, and now, of course, mass rain events, a cyclone and even flooding. And it turns out 2023 was not just the warmest year on record, but the hottest and by quite some way. That's according to a new report that's been released by the Global Water Monitor Consortium. The lead author of that report is Professor Albert Van Dyke from ANU's Fenner School of Environment and Society. We've been doing this for a while now and every year we look at uh, uh, how both water disasters and water resources or water availability uh, have changed across the world. And what we saw in 2023 is, is basically... Uh, that uh, there was uh, some very strong droughts uh, and some very quickly developing droughts with with really unprecedented fires in Canada, for instance, uh, a very rapid uh, developing drought in uh, in Brazil. We saw massive cyclones uh, and other severe storms really throughout the world, from a cyclone in the Mediterranean to to uh, southern Africa to Australia. So it's been it's been a pretty dramatic year, really. And I guess we can say that the record heat is driving this wild weather. Are you able to explain to us how the heat sometimes leads to drought and sometimes leads to extreme rainfall like we've been seeing in the last month or so? Yeah, I think I can. So so <laughs> for cyclones to develop, we need a, a warm sea, basically. There's no cyclones in, in, the, in cold seas. So what we're seeing is that cyclones can travel to places like New Zealand in the beginning of, this, of 2023, uh, where they previously wouldn't travel because the, the seas uh, weren't warm enough. It's kind of kind of excess of fuel for cyclones. So we see cyclones behave in strange ways. We don't necessarily see more cyclones, but we certainly, when cyclones occur, they're more unpredictable and they tend to be a lot wetter and often also with stronger winds. And that was certainly quite clear in 2023. Um, on the other hand, the, the the warming of the atmosphere also means that it's it's relatively drier. Uh, and that means that uh, 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 when there is a lack of rainfall, that the uh, the, the catchments and the, and the agricultural sort of lands and the, and the forests dry out faster and 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 more severely than they would uh, under sort of normal temperatures. So so that's why you can have both severe droughts and more severe droughts and more severe rainfall. Yeah, how you end uh, up with both ends of the spectrum there. I'm interested, though, in what your report has discovered in terms of the damage that this is doing to things like our forests and our ecosystems. Yeah, well, well that's a real worry. So so you might have heard uh, about the one and a half degrees kind of uh, magic limit, which is not really magic limit at all, of course, but it's something that politicians uh, need to make agreements about. That that's uh, the uh, uh, that came out of the Paris COP climate change the, conference in, in 2015, it, and we agreed that we would try and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees above um, industrialization at, at best, and and two degrees at worst. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's a great summary. Um, 
So, so what we saw last year was basically one half degrees uh, warmer than that. Uh, and, and, and we're seeing some of the uh, uh, so-called tipping points, things that scientists worry about might irreversibly uh, put us on a, 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 you know, put a, put a kind of an exponential increase in warming. Uh, we saw some of those things occur. So we did see that, um, especially in Canada, there was a lot of forest burns burnt and that uh, as a consequence of a drought and that puts carbon back into the atmosphere. So it kind of nullifies some of the things we're trying to do to reduce emissions. And the, the worry was that the same might happen in the Amazon. Now, fortunately, uh, the last month seems to have been a bit warmer. Um, but uh, you know, those sorts of tipping points are a real concern. Professor Albert Van Dyke from the Australian National University speaking with Sarah Maurice. I'm Bridget Herman with you for the show today. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. And it's all about the hot weather on Countrywide this week. We're taking a deep dive in to understand just how last year's record heat impacted agriculture. Grain, one of Australia's main agricultural commodities, fared reasonably well despite the record heat. That's partially because of a hangover from last year's record-breaking grain crop and because of the impacts globally from the heat. Rabobank's Stefan Vogel says to understand the impact of hot weather, it's important to look at what happened for farmers in other parts of the world. This uh, heat waves that we have seen in certain parts of the world have changed quite a bit the dynamics of the agri-market. And maybe we uh, focus on the cropping side first. And when I say cropping, maybe we dive actually in the big crops like wheat and corn and so on. So maybe starting off um, clearly for us here in Australia, we are a rather small player in that market, but we're not an unimportant one um, for us. We turned after three years of really good crops driven by La Nina actually into a drier season over here, meaning um, our crop in terms of wheat, barley, canola, all was somewhere in the ballpark of the five-year average. So that's not a bad number actually for an El Nino year. You would have actually feared early on that it could turn even worse. Um, But other parts of the world um, were maybe not as lucky and probably the most unlucky one was actually Argentina, which is a major producer. They're producing roughly twice as much uh, grains and oilseeds as we do in Australia. And their crop was slashed almost 50% due to dryness, while the beneficiary, for example, was actually Brazil. Um, Their weather, especially in the northern parts, and Brazil is one of the largest producers of agri-commodities in the world. They benefited from sufficient rains and good rains, so they offset partly the losses we had in Argentina, so that South America as a whole still delivered a pretty good crop. And then you need to look into other parts of the world. Um, The U.S. actually recovered their yield. Um, It was a bit of a patchy season, and the U.S. is the real driver in those export markets for grains. Um, A lot of the prices are actually determined over there because of the exchanges we have. So the U.S. market benefited from a rather good crop, better than expected, despite some of the dry patches, and much better than the year before. And the year before, 2022, was actually that year of very, very high prices. And that was not only related to the war in Ukraine, not only to the aftermath of uh, COVID and the implications to logistics, but it was really also driven. 2022 was the first year in a decade that the world saw less grain production than in the year before. And the U.S. was one of those key drivers. And then we need to jump also quickly over to uh, northern parts of Europe, um, and especially in the European side. Uh, If you think about there, it was once again a hot, 
summer, dry summer. Um, overall, the production has suffered slightly, but actually the most important uh, impact was not so much in the grain space. It was one of the vegetable oils and one of the good ones, actually, olive oil. Um, prices more than doubled for olive oil globally in the last, let's say, 12 to 14 months and tripled over a two and a half, three year time frame, all driven by the heat and dryness we had in uh, in Europe because the producers in Spain, Greece, uh, Italy, they are producing roughly 80% of the world's olive oil and they had a dryness. And so to bring that back to Australia's uh, grain producers, these different situations happening overseas, do they lead to good prices for our grain growers? Well, depending on what time frame you're looking at. So 2022, actually, our producers over here had a very good season, uh, lots of production volumes, and we had really, really good prices. So 2022 was that perfect year, and that lasted for quite a while. But unfortunately, over the course of most of the year 2023, prices moved lower because actually global supplies, despite some of the weather problems that I've described, um, the supplies of grains actually improved around the world. And that had to do especially with the North American side being uh, being in a rather decent shape. So 23 was by far uh, not as good of a year for Australian producers as the year before, with our volumes just about a five-year average and prices quite a bit down. But still, the year was actually better for our farmers here than our earlier feared, because the weather here was not as harsh as we feared. The crop productions were not as bad. And on top of it, you always have to think about there are two sides to an income of a farmer. It's what you make on the output side, but it's also what you have to spend to actually produce those crops. And luckily, especially the fertilizer market has come down quite a bit in that time frame. So farmers here uh, paid less for fertilizer than the year before. So their margins looked not too bad, but it was for sure not as a great year as 2022. And was there a bit of a buffer from the heat with leftover wet weather from the La Nina years, you know, from 2022 and those earlier years? Yeah, if you if you think about the harvest and, and our harvest here in Australia usually only starts around November uh, or sometimes even only December. We were actually rather a little bit early this year or, or last year, better to say. It's already 24 as we're speaking, but 2023 harvest started early because of the drier conditions. And yes, we had a bit of a buffer. We had uh, inventories from last year still sitting around. Last year's record-breaking crop, especially in uh, states like Western Australia, where the volumes were so big and despite pretty much an export record-breaking volume every month, the logistics just couldn't move everything to the world market. And if you have a situation like this, you're building some inventories across the country. So yes, we had a bit of a buffer from that perspective. Um, while on a global level, actually, inventories for several of the crops were rather low at that point in time. So that kept prices maybe still better supported than uh, than initially feared. Is it known yet what yields were looking like for this year's harvest? Well, it depends what you call this year. So basically that the harvest when it started uh, around November and uh, it's largely finished now uh, as we're here in, in early January, um, those yields were around the five-year average, slightly below the five-year average. So Australia produced uh, a little bit shy of 50 million metric tons of grains, which is not a bad number given that we had drier conditions, but that's about 35, 37% down from the volumes we've harvested in the year before. And that was just a record breaking year. So on paper, the, the harvest that has more or less just finished for wheat and barley, canola and so on, looks 
dramatically down on year, um, but it isn't as bad as it could have been. And clearly looking now into the future, into 2024, it is too early to say what will happen because uh, the crops are not even planted. So in most regions across Australia, we're probably going to start planting in about two and a half, three months time. Um, and there can a lot happen in that growing season that will come. Stefan Vogel, the General Manager of Rabobank Research Australia and New Zealand. I'm Bridget Herman, and we're talking all things the food on your plate. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Well, the warm weather, particularly in winter, has impacted other crops too. Mangoes in northern Queensland struggled with an unseasonably warm winter. The fruit tree needs a cold snap to bring on the conditions required for flowering. The well-known Kensington Pride variety was particularly hit by the conditions. Lucy Cooper filed this report back in September when the low yields were first becoming apparent to growers. At a North Queensland mango farm, the season isn't shaping up the way everyone had hoped. At the moment, I'd say it's not great. The the weather's definitely had an impact on us this year. David Lawrence is the farm manager for two of Manbaloo Mango's farms. Manbaloo is Australia's largest Kensington Pride grower, with two farms in the NT, three in the Atherton Tablelands and two in the Burdekin region of North Queensland. Speaking at Horseshoe Lagoon, one of Manbaloo's Burdekin-based farms which has 18,000 mango trees, David said it was August when he realised it was going to be a difficult season. Oh, I would say beginning of August, first week of August, we're usually pretty cold but we sort of didn't really get the temperatures that we wanted. Mangoes need cold winter nights to grow fruit throughout spring and summer. So you need colder temperatures to induce buds and bud break, which then forms flowers, consecutive weeks of cold temperatures. Anything below, I'd say 12 degrees is perfect consecutively for weeks or up to a month would really help. We've had a couple below 12s, only a handful, but not really consecutively. Most of them have been the coldest we've sort of been. have been around that 16 degrees as minimums, so it's not optimal. It's been above normal temperatures for winter, hence the flowering of the mangoes. It's sort of slowed it down and made it a lot later than usual. So David says it's been colder than average because of poor mango flowering, but has it actually been a warmer winter? Here's senior climatologist for the Bureau of Meteorology, Greg Browning, to explain. It has been a warm winter, so temperatures, uh, maximums and minimums have been around a degree above the uh, the long-term average. Uh, so it has been a particularly warm winter. Um, hasn't been especially dry. There's been some good rain in some areas around northern Queensland. But certainly right across Queensland, we've seen above temperatures for maximums and minimums this winter. Uh, Certainly the forecast is showing quite a strong signal for above average temperatures continuing. We do expect that to continue right throughout spring, basically. And uh, uh, rainfall will be probably closer to average. Uh, Nothing exceptional there, but certainly ongoing warm conditions and, yeah, likely to continue into to summer so uh, certainly they're going to get those warm days for the the fruit um, but um, yeah the, there won't be too many cool nights sort of going forward as we get into the warmer time of the year. 
Slow flowering essentially results in low yields. I would definitely say below average at the moment. We're probably sitting at about 30% of our usual yield, but um, I'd expect that to increase significantly over the next two to three weeks. That significant increase David is referring to is because the temperature will now increase with spring upon us, but it won't be a saving grace. We'll have still the best quality mangoes and there just won't be as quite as many this year. Whilst there might not be as many, there will still be great quality mangoes on supermarket shelves. And really, that's just part and parcel of life providing food to people. That's just farming and the cycles, nature. It's never always going to be the same every year. Um, there's a lot of different factors that come involved, like colder weather, longer wet seasons, which seem to hold the colder weather out for longer. Yeah, there's quite a few factors, but it's mainly just nature. David Lawrence, farm manager for Australia's largest Kensington Pride mango grower, Mambaloo Mangoes. Now, on the other side of the country, down in South Australia, producers of dried stone fruits have also been impacted by the heat. A wetter and more humid summer than usual is to blame for the shortages of products like dried apricots and dried pears. And warmer than average conditions during the growing season meant there was less fruit growing on the trees. Eliza Berlage visited stone fruit grower Chris Werner at Wakery in the Riverland region to find out just how challenging drying fruit has been this season. Well, you use a lot more chemical for starters, and I mean, we we started in November, which is very we've never done that before. But we're just sort of three days into it and got 35 mils of rain, so that then turns the product. You've got to spray again. Brown rot comes in, split fruit. Fair bit drops on the ground, which you've got to clean up. So it was—it's been a challenge, but you know that's the industry. So. so when you see the rain start, the rain clouds cut, come, start coming in. Yeah, what do you do? Do you sort of like you run to get the washing off the line? Do you run and grab the trays? Or? Well, the kids usually get the washing off the line and, and sometimes help us stack up. But yeah, if, as soon as it looks like it's going to rain, everything's got to come off the drying green and go undercover. Some of it's got to go back into the sulphur tent, and it's yeah, one of those things. So. And how many times have you had to take them take them back into the sulphur tent compared to a regular season? Oh, well, last week, for instance, nearly every tray went through the sulphur twice. You don't give it a full dose a second time, but you've got to replace what's lost when it's laid out. And every tray probably last week would have been laid out four times. Four times? Yeah, patient, patient man. <laughs> well, you haven't got time for patience. you just got to do it. So that's life. You know, it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And so um, adding more sulphur and, and taking more time to do the trays multiple times, what does that mean for, you know, your costs of production? Well, on a year like this where the production was down probably two-thirds anyway, you're adding um, exponentially probably another 30% on top of that in extra costs. And you say production was down about two-thirds, so that was because of uh, split fruit and, and brown rotten fruit from the rain? Oh, not so much. The crop wasn't there to start with. We, we, you know, we, we're waiting for this climate change stuff they're talking about because we want a, a cold night winter and we want nice hot summers, but we're not getting any of it at the moment. So, yeah, that was the biggest issue. There wasn't cold enough to actually set the fruit. How cold do you actually need it to set the fruit, and this, what did you get? This variety here, which is Hunter, needs 600 hours below 5 degrees. Do you know roughly what you got instead? Oh, this year it would have been lucky to be 300. Like, it was just terrible. So The days were cold, but the nights were warm. So. How does that compare to over the years? Have you had many spells like this where you haven't got the cold nights? 
you get one in ten, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it's just this year happened to come on back of hailstorms last year, so it was just one of those things. And you mentioned the hailstorms last year. I know I've heard the last few years with uh, more rain and hailstorms have been really hard for stone fruit growers in Australia. What have you experienced, and what have others experienced that you've heard of in the industry? Oh well, I know of a, a fella in Berry that got hit two years in a row with hail and. If you get a bad hailstorm, you get nothing. And then what you do get is marked and as a very, very downgraded piece of fruit. So. For your fruit that gets downgraded, what can you do with it? We trim it as we're scraping it off, um, throw it in a box for either what we call a slab or it goes to a bakery grade, basically, which price difference is, say, $18 back to about 6 to 8 So, So less than half. Less than half, yep. For consumers that are purchasing dried fruit, you know, these extra costs of production that you've had from weather that's a little bit wetter than normal, do the costs get passed on to any of your distributors or consumers? You try, but it doesn't work. So, no, technically you get nothing more. So. And are you likely to have any um, shortages in supply of any of your dried fruit this year? Yeah, we're, we're going to be quite short. I've actually told a couple of our normal customers that we can't supply this year, so, which is a pain because it takes a year to, years to build up a customer base. But what do you do? Like, it's a supply and demand situation. So. Of your dried fruit that you're expecting to have shortages in, is that any particular varieties that you're seeing and how much shorter are you expecting to be? Oh, well, we'd be half to two-thirds short and it's across all apricot varieties, basically. A lot of the Newer breed stuff wasn't too bad, but the Hunter and the, the Moor Park, they're all down. So it's just the way it is for this year. So. Yeah, it must be so hard to be in demand when you know the industries have a glut. Yeah, that, that's the other thing. I mean, we, we, we the industry as a whole can't supply Australia, never alone start the export, which we've got an exportable product. But if you haven't got it, you can't, you can't sell it. So. And you've been uh, growing, you know, your own dried fruit and selling it for a few decades, I, yes, I hear, but yes. there's been a, a growing a resurgence in interest in domestically grown fruit. Well, one thing, although the prices aren't brilliant, they're stable, and there's not an industry out there at the moment that's got a stable price on their products. So. Dried Tree Fruit Australia Chair Chris Werner speaking with Eliza Berlage. This is Countrywide. I'm Bridget Herman. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Well, we're talking all things record heat today on Countrywide. And the hot weather felt last year hasn't just been felt on land. It was in the water too. In December, a marine heatwave formed off the New South Wales coast with sea temperatures forecast to reach 2.5 degrees Celsius warmer than usual this summer. Scientists are concerned that the warm waters could affect the lucrative aquaculture industry and also threaten kelp forests. Here's Bernadette Clark reporting at the time. A marine heatwave is currently sitting kilometres offshore on New South Wales' south coast and authorities are concerned it could shift onshore, damaging kelp forests, abalone and oysters. But what is a marine heatwave? Research fellow from the University of Tasmania, Dr Kane Layton, who lives on the south coast, explains. So people are really familiar with heatwaves we have on land. We obviously have general warming on land, but we get this period of intense 
uh, often short warming that can be overlaid on that. And that's a heat wave on land. It's really the same thing in the oceans, but we have background warming that's happening uh, in the ocean and that's also getting worse with climate change. But we also have these intense, much shorter periods of warming over the top of that and that's called a marine heat wave. The southeast of Australia is a global ocean warming hotspot already. We've already seen changes uh, in our part of the world that are only expected to be seen elsewhere in the next coming decades. So, you know, we've already seen upwards of a degree of warming uh, in our oceans in southeast Australia. Marine heat waves have had dire consequences in the past, and now all eyes are on the southeast of Australia. So we've seen some really big heat waves in the relatively recent uh, past in Australia. In 2010, 2011, we saw a really severe one in Western Australia, and that caused about a 100-kilometre die-off of kelp, of golden kelp. And still, you know, 13 years later, that kelp still hasn't recovered. So that's a permanent retraction of that species, which is really worrying. Without kelp, you can't have kelp forests, and that's really the home for all of those incredible uh, organisms that live here. The last major marine heat wave was in 2015-2016 off the coast of Tasmania. Temperatures rose to 2.5 degrees above average and it ran for 250 days. It led to blacklip abalone mortalities, salmon losses and may have contributed to the outbreak of the highly contagious viral infection Pacific Oyster Mortality Syndrome, or POMS. Here's John Smythe, an abalone diver and secretary of the Abalone Association, New South Wales. Well, we know that heat, hot water is one of the major stresses for abalone. So obviously the industry from here right through to Tasmania is concerned that we could have a hot water event or a marine heat wave event, as they're calling it. Similar to what you had in West Australia some weeks ago that killed their roe-eye abalone. Well, uh, yeah, we're concerned. We've been monitoring it and hoping that the warmer parts of that water won't come right in hard on the coast. Mr Smith is hopeful that upwellings will counteract the warmer water. An upwelling is where a wind-driven motion of cooler water from deep water comes towards the ocean's surface, which could help protect the abalone in their environment. It employs a lot of people and we've got about 20-something divers at deckhands so a lot of families rely on it for their income every year. And of course, no abalone would mean no income. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries has committed to a nationwide response plan for the marine heatwave here on the south coast and the possibility of another forming off the coast of Tasmania. Scientists are taking kelp forest samples before the heatwave swings onshore. Here's DPI's principal scientist in fisheries research, Melinda Coleman in Eden on the far south coast of New South Wales. We're currently experiencing marine heatwave conditions off the coast of New South Wales. We have a, um, a moderate marine heatwave from about Sydney, Newcastle all the way um, south. And um, what we want to try to find out is what that's doing to our kelp forest. So we're, we're putting tags around a whole bunch of our kelp plants and we're going to track them through that marine heatwave cycle. And the main aim is to, I guess, look for the silver lining. So we don't want to look at the plants that actually might perish, but the survivors and if we can figure out what are those characteristics of the surviving plants that, that help them to survive those hotter temperatures, so things like their underlying genetics or the microbes that live on their surface, we can use that information um, to better manage and conserve and, and restore those really important habitats. What are your hopes for the study that you're doing right now? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I hope we don't see any impacts. Um, it's, it's not what a scientist wants to see because it's 
in the end a bit of a boring result but ideally we will see no impacts on the kelp forests and they're going to be resilient to this warmer water that we're experiencing off New South Wales now. Scientists say monitoring this heat wave could help prepare for a future where they are more frequent. I think the research is extremely important. Often with marine heat waves, there's not a lot that we can do about it. I mean, reducing emissions is one of the major things that we need to be doing to, to stop some of these sorts of climatic changes. But with research, we can help um, prepare for some of these marine heat waves if we know what are some of the impacts that we are likely to see. And that will help us to then predict going forward um, what we might see with, with ongoing marine heat waves, which are predicted to increase in intensity and frequency um, into, into the future. That report by ABC reporter Bernadette Clark. Well, we've been doing a deep dive into 2023's record heat today on Countrywide. That is all for today's episode, though. You can tune in next week for more news about your food and where it comes from. I'm Bridget Herman. Bye for now. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.